But uh, yeah, welcome everyone. I'm glad you're here this morning. My name is Kyle, um, and I'll be sharing you the first message of our new series leading um, into Easter, and so I'm very excited to be up the front for this. Um, as Pastor Paul has sort of mentioned, our, our series is focused on uh, the person of Jesus, God stepping into our world for our salvation. And uh, I guess if you are even remotely connected to church, uh, Christian church in any way, you'll sort of understand that Jesus is the central focus of our scriptures, of the Bible, um, and Jesus is a central person in our, in our faith. Um, scripture also teaches us that Jesus is not only the center of belief, but in Hebrews 12, 2, we read that Jesus is also the person who initiates and perfects our, our faith. Um, Hebrews 12, 2 says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, um, disregarding its shame, and now he is seated, seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. And so if we are, if we are to sort of trust and believe that this is the core of, of our belief, that Jesus is the one who pioneers, Jesus is the one who initiates our faith, that Jesus is, is the one who, who finishes our faith, and Jesus is the one who, who perfects our faith, then we should probably become experts in the person of Jesus. Um, and while this series might not be enough for you to reach expert status in the life of Jesus, um, it, it, we hope that it actually draws your eyes just a little bit closer to Jesus and that you understand uh, a little bit more about Jesus and a little bit more about how Jesus thought about things, about how Jesus approached different parts of life, um, how he approached his journey to the cross, as we'll be looking at more and more as the weeks go on, uh, and how Jesus had a heart that was fully aligned uh, and fully like in sync with God's will. And I, I pray that as we learn more and more about Jesus, we are falling more and more in, in love with him, and that we are more and more formed by our knowledge of Jesus. And, and the beautiful part in all of, all of this is that we don't, we don't just do this on our own. In James chapter 4, it says, So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. So God is part of this. God is more than able to draw us close to himself. There is a, a supernatural action at work here as God brings himself near to us, us, us feeble, feeble people. Uh, and in doing so, as God draws near to us and as we draw near to him, we are, we are transformed and we are renewed uh, and we are made more and more like Jesus. And so throughout this series, uh, we're going to be looking at, at parables uh, and wisdom and teaching and, and messages from, from Jesus to get to know him better. And in doing so, we pray that we will start to look and act and think like Jesus in greater and greater measures. Uh, the passage that I'm going to be speaking from today is, is found in the Gospel of John, and it takes place as Jesus is nearing the end of his time on earth. Uh, and in the previous chapter, so I'll be speaking from chapter 12, but in the previous chapter, in chapter 11, Jesus performs this uh, amazing miracle as he uh, raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, and as this happens, this sort of really starts to send ripples and shockwaves through the communities. He was already pretty well known, but his notoriety really starts to raise now. And there's lots of people starting to be convinced that Jesus might just be the real deal. Uh, the big religious rulers of the day, uh, the Pharisees, who are the people that sort of gatekept the Jewish uh, faith, 
Uh, they didn't really like how widespread the message of Jesus was spreading, and they began plotting in earnest to kill him. And then we step into chapter 12, and Jesus and his disciples head into Jerusalem during the time of Passover. And so Jerusalem, uh, at this time in history, was described by Gary Burge in uh, this way. This is how Gary Burge describes it. This glorious city was the religious and national pride of Judaism. Rebuilt by Herod the Great, it was celebrated as a marvel, not simply of architecture, but of spiritual confidence. It confirmed Israel's election before God and Israel's confidence in history. So Jesus is walking into the heartland, the epicenter of the Jewish faith, and he's doing so at the time of Passover. And Passover is described this way. Passover is the oldest and most important religious festival in Judaism, commemorating God's deliverance of the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt and his creation of the Israelite people. So I want, I want you to sort of take a moment just to appreciate the setup of what is happening here in this passage. So uh, Jesus, someone who uh, the leaders of the Jewish faith have plotted to kill, is coming into Jerusalem, which is the city, which is the epicenter of the Jewish faith. And he's doing so at the time of Passover, which is the most significant and the most important time of the year for the Jewish faith. So Jesus could not have made a more volatile and macho entrance if he tried. Like it's in the action movies uh, when they say something like, we're going to get in by going the way they least expect. We're going to go through the front door. Like this is Jesus going through the front door. So he is like marching into Jerusalem and he does in all humility, like it talks about him coming in on a donkey in all humility, but he is going in at the most volatile time he could ever walk into like just the, the, you know, the core of what is going on in the Jewish faith. And so Jesus has marched through the front door. Word has spread. People are aware. And the final journey of Jesus has begun. And so the passage I'm reading today is John 12, 20 to 26. Uh, your Bible might have a little title on the top that says Jesus predicts his death. Um, and it says this. Some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a, a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And they said, sir, we want to meet Jesus. Philip told Andrew about it, and to, they went together to ask Jesus. And Jesus replied, now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for this life, their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am, and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. And so this section uh, is the one that I'll be sharing from today. So uh, maybe let's pray before we go any further. Yeah, Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your goodness and your goodness to us. Uh, Lord, I want to just uh, thank you that you've given us your word and that we can 
constantly be reading it and finding more and new insights about you. And Lord, I just pray that as we are reading through these passages today, and especially focusing on the person of Jesus and the way that Jesus approached uh, our life and all the things that he encountered, Lord, I pray that you would give us just a keen insight into the way Jesus thought, um, the way Jesus positioned himself, um, and just the person um, that he was. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would be drawn to him and drawn to be more like him. Uh, thank you, Lord, for speaking to us already through this service, and I pray that you would continue to minister to us now. Amen. So, what was I made for? That is, uh, what, that is the big question that people have been asking for a long time. What was I made for? What is life for? What is our purpose? Why are we here? What is my life about? Um, the biggest film of last year, anyone remember what the... Yeah, I barely got the question out. Well, wow. the biggest film of last year, Barbie, um, asks the question, what was I made for? As sung by Billie Eilish in the soundtrack, you know, what was I made for? Uh, almost every movie at some point has this question of purpose or this question of identity. And at the end of the day, we are all going through this life together. And if we do not understand what life is about... And if we do not understand what we are made for, then life becomes really shallow really quickly. Uh, I've often walked through Bunnings um, and looked at some of the tools on the walls, and I've often wondered, what are you? And <laughs> what do you do, I wonder? And the best way to answer that question I've found is to speak to the people in the bright red shirts at Bunnings. Uh, I speak to the experts, and these experts know who made the tool and what the tool was made for. And now I know in this, this analogy I'm calling us all tools, um, but sometimes you just got to take it on the chin. You know, what are these tools made for, I wonder? But that, so you sort of just look around, and you need to speak to the people that made the tools. You need to speak to the people that created the tools and designed the tools. Um, a little bit of trivia about this passage, actually, before I get any further, is I'm pretty certain in the church that I grew up in, in Echuca, Echuca Community Church, um, had this Bible verse written on the pulpit. And I remember going up uh, to the pulpit every now and again, the John 12, 21, and it just had the last section of it. And it said on the pulpit, sir, we would like to see Jesus. And so I've seen this verse um, since I was like, you know, five years old, and I've seen it a lot there. Um, and so uh, going into this passage... We've got a little bit of a background of what is going on here. Uh, we, we understand what is happening in the lead-up to this passage. And keeping in mind now, Jesus is in his early 30s, around 33 years old, and he's been in his ministry for about three years now, and things are starting to pick up speed. So Jesus is pretty well-known. Uh, people are hearing his message. His disciples are growing in their ability and their leadership and their confidence. The rulers of the land, uh, they are aware of him, both like the secular and religious rulers are quite aware of, of Jesus. Um, and people are actively seeking him out to come and sort of sit under his teaching. Um, and so this is, this is the peak of Jesus's ministry. This is the apex of his ministry, or, or so it would appear. And so some people have approached uh, Jesus' disciples and they ask that they would meet with Jesus. Uh, and as this request sort of gets passed on and gets put towards Jesus, um, it sort of starts this, this switch, this 180 in how Jesus speaks about himself. Um, Jesus has been calling people to follow him. And in this moment, he starts to speak a little bit more explicitly about what following him actually means. 
Um, come follow Jesus, you know, come join this guy, the all-conquering upstart who is disrupting the political and religious systems. Come follow Jesus who seems to have power over sickness and death. And Jesus replied, now the time has come for the Son to enter into glory. All right, here we go. Jesus is about to announce his candidacy for election, you know, move over Trump and Biden or ScoMo and whoever, Alvin, who's, who's our prime minister? <laughs> Anthony, someone, uh, Albanese, move over guys, because Jesus is announcing his election candidacy, he's about to run 2024, this is exciting, you know, and then he's like, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. You're like, What? It's like, oh, okay, well, those who love their life in this world will lose it. Oh, okay, great. Those who care for nothing in this life will keep it. Oh, okay, I'm starting to think that Jesus might not be the type of leader that we think he is. Maybe he's cracked a little, you know, under the pressure. And so Jesus, in this moment, sort of breaks open his teaching on life in a dramatic way because in this moment, Jesus starts to flip everyone's understanding on what life is really about. And I'm not casting blame here on anyone, but even in our casual speaking, we sort of play into this mindset of thinking um, that, you know, life is about success and life is about health and life is about happiness. You know, happy new year, happy birthday, praying for health and wealth and prosperity. Uh, And like I know as Christians, we don't really lean into all that too much. It's just positive thinking. Um, But we live in a world that teaches a lot of that stuff, you know, the, the alpha male mentality, the she could really have it all slogan, the don't settle for less, you know, get back to the grind, the one who dies with the biggest boat wins, you know, Elon Musk is my hero because he has lots of money and makes cool toys. This country president or prime minister or ruler is great because they're powerful and they don't back down. They are number one. You know, we live in this culture where being the best, being number one, being on top of the game is the goal. That's what we we strive for. Being number one is the best outcome in life. And in this, we find a bit of a, a, I guess, a tension. The tension of living up to your potential and not wasting what you've been given because, uh, and and I guess doing your best and and trying your hardest because that seems like a good and godly pursuit. And I, I think that's true. And then there's this tempering aspect of Jesus where he sort of seems to be bringing in where he's saying, hey, actually, your life needs to be laid down. You know, Uh, life needs to be sort of let go of. You need to be pretty open-handed with this life of yours. And so it's like, oh, should should we strive or should we let go? Should we push as hard as we can and squeeze every bit of juice out of this life? Or should we just sort of let go of the steering wheel and let the road take us where it leads, you know? And are they actually really two opposite choices? Or have we massively misunderstood what our options are? And so I want to propose that Jesus, in his simple statements, with insanely deep implications, has given us a key on how we are to look at life. Because Jesus has a whole lot to say about life. Uh, In John 3.16, Jesus tells us how to have eternal life. So, for God so loves the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In John 8, Jesus tells us that our lives will be taken from darkness into light if we follow him. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have light of life. In John 14, uh, Jesus tells us that he himself is life. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus tells us about where life comes from and where to find eternal life and how to have a life that is illuminated by God. But in this specific passage in John 12, I think, John, uh, I think Jesus gives us an insight to how he views life itself. It gives us an insight into how Jesus understands life. And so the common interpretation of this passage is that Jesus is alluding to what lie ahead of him, uh, which is, of course, the road to the cross, that dusty road to glory. Uh, A seed being planted in the ground and dying, but in its death a multitude of new life is created. A harvest is created from the death of one seed. So it's easy to understand why this is the most common interpretation of the passage. And it fits very well into sort of what happens in the next few chapters of John. Uh, The John MacArthur Study Bible comments this way. It says, This refers to Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation. As the stone kernel dies and brings forth a rich harvest, so also the death of the Son of God will result in the salvation of many. And not only is this principle of death applicable to Jesus, but it is also applicable to his followers because they too, as his disciples, may lose their life in service and witness to him. So Jesus is teaching that in, in the loss of life, but specifically in the loss of his life, there is great gain for many. And so we've always understood that as a church, and we've always appreciated that. In fact, it is a core doctrine of Christianity, and it's something that we remember every time we take communion. We remembered that this morning as we took communion, And so it's not just anyone's life that we're remembering, but Jesus' life specifically, because in the sacrifice of a perfect life, there is a harvest for many. Through the perfect life and death of Jesus, there have been many who have been brought and given new life. And so this is is the common understanding of this passage. And I'm not one to argue with some of our great scholars and theologians, but I will. But it seems to me that this is sort of a fairly narrow view of what this passage actually means. It feels to me that it's quite a limiting understanding and a limiting view of what Jesus is really saying here. And so with permission, I'd like to invite us into looking at this passage as something that is not just this binary thing of life and death or birth and death, but rather it's something that is more encompassing than just the beginning of life and the end of life. But there's this whole lot of stuff that happens in between your birth and your death that I think these verses speak to. And I think the best way to understand these verses more fully falls in line with something that the Apostle Paul says, and maybe Timothy also writes in Philippians. And it says this, For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past, and I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful works for Christ. So I don't really uh, know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go to be with Christ, which is far better for me. But for your sakes, is I continue to live. Knowing this, I'm convinced that I will remain alive. So I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. And when I come to you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Jesus Christ because of what he is doing through me. So this is how I understand what Jesus is saying. One of the keys to hermeneutics or Bible study is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so in this fuller picture of Scripture, 
I think we see the bigger picture than just this binary idea of birth and death, but we actually see the full spectrum of life being laid out in front of us by Jesus. And I think what Jesus is saying in the broader statement is reflected in what the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians, and that is, to die is gain. Yes, I understand that in death there is gain. For Jesus, in his death, yes, there was gain, because in in Jesus' death there was the salvation for many. We would not be here as professing Christians without the death and resurrection of Jesus. So yes, to die for Jesus is gain. And the Apostle Paul, as he writes, to die is gain. For him it is gain because he saw death as an invitation to be seated with his Savior in eternity. But that is just death itself. And that is like a literal death. But I think before a literal death, Jesus actually speaks about a metaphorical death. And that is a death to self. And when we give up our own life so that Christ can live in us, that is when Christ and God can be fully reflected in us. And we use symbols of this metaphorical death in our church all the time. We use baptism, which we announced this morning, to reflect our old selves, dying and being resurrected with Christ. Um, so I guess for those of you who aren't like in the church world, I know there's lots of new people here. Um, uh, uh, baptism, we have this practice of when someone accepts Jesus as their Lord and Savior, uh, we invite them to give a public witness or a public testimony, a public statement of their faith. And we do that through the act of baptism, where a person is laid into a water and then they are lifted out. And it is this beautiful representation of our life being surrendered uh, over to God and God raising us up to live life fully. We are laying down our old lives. And in this symbolic sort of act, we take a symbolic nature of death and resurrection, but it represents a very real transaction of what takes place. And the reason I feel that Jesus' teaching on life in these verses are open to this type of interpretation is because I think Jesus and the rest of the New Testament are really clear about the power of God to work through people who have given themselves wholly and fully to God. There is a church word that we use to describe this. The word is consecrate or consecration. Um, The literal definition is something that has been declared sacred. Uh, In the Old Testament, there is another word uh, used in this setting, and that is holy, uh, which means to be set apart. It's like, these are the plates that we use at home when it's just family, and these are the consecrated plates that we bring out when we have guests coming over. You understand what I'm saying? Yes. These are the normal plates and the ordinary plates. These are the sacred plates. These are the plates that you put wheat picks in. These are the plates that we put special desserts that we bought and pretend we baked ourselves in, you know. Sacred, uh, normal, sacred. Every day, consecrated. So it's that sort of, yeah, I, we all understand what's going on here. You guys have those dishes in the house. The ones that are kept in the cupboard that you can look at as a child but not touch. Um, I remember growing up uh, in a chuka in my auntie's house, um, they had a holy living room. Um, and it was, for, it was for the grown-ups. So there was the common living room for us disgusting children. And then there was the holy living room, which was, had like sliding doors as well. You'd open it and you're like, oh, you've got wallpaper. <laughs> like, <laughs> you've got enough seats for everyone in here. That's interesting. Uh, but then they would close the door and us disgusting children would have to stay on the outside in the common living room and they would go to the holy living room. It was a set-apart living room. And now, I didn't understand it back then, but now that I have children, 
I fully appreciate a room that they're not allowed in. <laughs> like, sometimes I'm ready to declare my whole house holy, and the, back, the backyard is a common area. You stay in the backyard, don't come inside, please. But in terms of... I love my family, sorry. They're, they're not in the room right now, so don't pass it on. Um, cut that from the feed. Um, but in terms of life, like a life being consecrated is a life that is being laid down for yourself and your own misguided desires and your own sinful nature, your own poorly formed designs, and it is only, only picked up and only used by the creator of that life. A life that is dying to self and being given over for God to use and his purpose. In 2 Corinthians it says, Uh, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. The old life is gone. The old life has died and the new life has been born. Romans 6 says, And since we have been unified with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. For we know that our old sinful selves were crucified. They were died. um, So that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when when we died with Christ... We were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we also live with him. A seed, I'm a horticulturalist now, a seed is just this ball of untapped potential. It is an unyielded harvest until the seed is planted and the old shell is gone and a new life has begun. And so Billie Eilish sings or moans and whines, what was I made for? What was I made for? Well, this is your answer. You are made to be consecrated to God and to have your life fully given over to God because it is only when we die to ourselves that we truly experience life in all of its fullness. Now, there's a quote made famous by D.L. Moody. Um, D.L. Moody was an American evangelist and a preacher in the late, uh, early to late 1800s. And the quote that he made popular is, The world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. And by God's help, I aim to be that man. The world has yet to see what God can do with a person fully consecrated to him. And by God's help, we aim to be those people. And I'm hoping that as time goes on, we we understand that our, our vision and values of this church are aligned with what a scripture calls, what scripture calls a Christian to be. When we say whole-of-life discipleship, we are talking about someone who is fully, fully, fully consecrated to God. That every part of their life is holy. Every part of their life is sacred. Every part of their life is set apart for God. That we have laid down our claim of ownership over any part of our life. And instead, we have gone through the death and resurrection, allowing God to rule our hearts. Uh, In Matthew 22, uh, there's this interaction with uh, the Pharisees and Jesus again. The Pharisees met together to plot how to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. Uh, They sent some of their disciples along with the supporters of Herod, who was a ruler, to meet with him. And they said, teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You teach a way of God uh, truthfully. You are impartial and don't play favorites. So they're just fluffing him up a bit. Um, now tell us, what do you think about this? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So they're trying to trick him up with this question of taxes. Uh, but Jesus knew their evil motives. You hypocrites, he said. Why are you trying to trap me? 
here, show me a coin that is used for tax. And they handed him a Roman coin. And he said, whose picture and title are stamped on this coin? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, well then, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. His reply amazed them and they went away. Now, let me rephrase this little story for you in common language. Anything that has the world's image on it belongs to the world. But anything that has God's image on it belongs to God. And you are made in the image of God. Give to God what belongs to God. Can you imagine what life would look like if we were willing to fully, fully, fully commit to the teachings and mindset of Jesus? When Jesus saw his life for what it truly was, a gift from God to be given back to God. Jesus shows us that life is not something that we we cling to because only through our hard work and through our wrestling and through our striving and through our trying and all of our efforts that we can make something awesome out of it. Life belongs to God and it is only fully realized and it is only fully lived out when it has died, when we have died to ourselves and we have been raised back to life through God's capable hands. Uh, Frances R. Havergal uh, was an English poet and hymn writer, and she wrote a hymn titled, Take My Life and Let It Be. So uh, uh, probably a a good third of you will be very familiar with this hymn. Um, She wrote a hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. It was in 1874 that she wrote it. And the heart of the hymn is all about living your life in dedication to the Lord, just as Jesus is sharing in the way that he lives uh, so that God can raise him and empower him and use him. Uh, to those, who, This is what Jesus says, you know, to those who love their life in this world will lose it, but those who care for nothing in this life will keep it in eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me, this is Jesus, must follow me, because my servants must be where I am, fully consecrated to God, and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. And so Francis R. Havergal writes in the first verse, she writes, take my life and let it be, Consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in endless praise. Let them flow in endless praise. So imagine your life. Imagine all parts of it set apart, wholly for God's purpose. All your moments, all your days, living as an act of worship to God. Your study, your parenting, your dating, your singleness, your marriage, your rehab, your job hunt, your retirement, your grief, your joy, all parts of life consecrated, Lord, to thee. And in verse 2, Francis writes, Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Swift and beautiful for thee. So imagine your hands and, and your feet the things that you do, the spaces that you occupy, allowing the things that God loves being the driver for what you do and where you go. Um, I just had a phone call this week with uh, James Chen, who is one of our young adults, and he's given up six months of his time, six months of his work, six months of his wages to go and join YWAM in Hawaii. Tough, I know. Um, But he's gone to Hawaii to be trained up where he'll go and then be sent to another part of the globe for two or three months and he'll be sharing the gospel. His hands and his feet are moved by the love of God. Nothing holding on 
uh, sorry, not holding on to his own selfish desires, but God's eternal wisdom and God's plan. And uh, Francis writes in uh, verse 3, you know, take my voice and let me sing, always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee, filled with messages from thee. Imagine your voice lifted up in worship to God. Imagine the chapel full before 10 a.m. because we are eager to be here and space together to sing worship to God. Imagine your prayer life and your devotions being so consistent and fruitful that you are hearing from God himself and you have good news to share with your brothers and sisters. Messages from thee. Imagine us guarding our words so that we bring peace and not division to the family. And in the next verse, Francis writes, Take my silver and my gold, not a might would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose, every power as thou shalt choose. Imagine your finances given over to God, not the extras, not just the parts that we can afford to give away and not miss, but all our finances and all our financial goals surrendered to God. Imagine our older parents modeling the value of financial discipleship, not just financial advice, but financial discipleship. Imagine our young generation developing the heart to give back to God while you're still doing your part-time job at school, while you're studying at uni, while you're earning your first full-time paycheck. Imagine our intellect being blended in with God's heart and God's wisdom. And so we're not just being educated for a better job, but we're being educated to create a better world and a better kingdom. Francis goes on to say, Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer thine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. It shall be thy royal throne. Imagine God creating in you new desires. The old desires that are perverted and turned towards sin are replaced and renewed each day more and more. You are being surrendered to God so that your inclination is now to do good and to do God's work. Your default is service to God. Life is now tilted towards a closer relationship to God. And when you get gossiped about, when someone responds in a rude way, when work is hard, when you are sick, when you don't get your way, when you are forced into the uncomfortable and the unknown, when you are presented with the opportunities for for lust, greed, and aggression, your will flows from God's heart. The way you respond and the way you choose to move forward in life flows from God's heart. Francis writes, Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Ever only all for thee. Imagine your love. Like imagine imagine your your deepest your deepest longing being directed to God. Like imagine it's like this beam of light from from your heart to God's heart. There's this blinding beam of light from your heart to God's heart. And you have desire to partake only what is found within this beam of light between your heart and God's heart. Everything good, everything godly, everything beneficial is found within this beam of light between your heart and God's heart. And you have no desire to partake in any of the the perverted, distorted, harmful things that are found outside of this. 
Imagine your love for God protecting your life from things that will only harm you. Ever, only, all for thee. Like, do you want to give every part of your life given over to God? Every single bit given to God for His use and for His glory and for His kingdom. Because that is what Jesus tells us life is made for. That is what you were made for. We are made to be given over to God. We are made to be consecrated, sacred, holy, the good dishes. That is us for God. So I'm going to invite the prayer team to the front during worship as it starts. And these people that will be coming to the front are here to pray for you and pray with you. You might not know exactly what it is that you want prayer for, but if you feel the need to speak to God and you want someone to partner with you in that, come to the front during our next song and allow these people to minister to you. They're trustworthy people. And the worship team is going to lead us in a song. And I'm going to suggest that as we step, as they call us to stand and step into this time of worship, I'm going to ask us that we, we stand there as a, as a response during this song with our hands open. Laying our hands in front of us, handing our lives over to God the way that we saw Jesus do, so that we would be used by God to bring him glory and to build his kingdom. Open-handed as we hand over our old lives, our old desires, our old temptations, our old habits, our old self-belief of ownership, our old control, handing it over to God so that he can rule us completely. As Jesus said, anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. So let us be where Jesus is in complete submission to the Father, knowing that God will honor us in this space.